Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 19 of The Display Show. I'm your host, Brian Berkeley, here to discuss the latest developments in the display industry with key display industry leaders and influencers. Today's episode features Dr. Tara Akavan, who is the founder and CEO of Farisha Iris Tech Incorporated, which makes eye-friendly display technology for the automotive industry. Tara is also marketing vice chair for the Society for Information Display, and she's active with the CIE. We talked about how to succeed as an entrepreneur in the field of information display, growth prospects for displays in automobiles, the importance of resilience, especially for young female entrepreneurs, human perception, and SID. Please don't forget to click subscribe, touch the like button, and hit the bell for notification of new episodes. Now, on to the show. Greetings, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Tara Akavan, who comes to us from Montreal, Canada. Tara founded Iris Tech in 2015. If you turn back the hands of time to the display show episode number 10 with Helga Zietzen, Tara's startup was incubated under Tandem Launch Technologies. Iris Tech is a real success story as they were acquired by Farisha in April of 2020, which is no small feat considering that was the beginning of the pandemic. Tara earned her PhD from the Vienna University of Technology, where her research focused on computer vision and image processing. She was recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019 by EOI Canada. She gave a TEDx talk in Montreal, which is linked on your screen here. And she also received the prestigious PACE Innovation Award for the first product, Iris Tech, introduced into the market in 2021. Tara has a three-year-old daughter and has lived and worked in three different continents and countries. She grew up in Iran, studied in Vienna, Austria, and moved to Montreal to start Iris Tech as a second-year PhD student. Tara, welcome to The Display Show. Thank you, Ryan. Hi. I'm very happy and excited uh, to and look forward to our chat. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. You know, you and I first met several years back at SID's Display Week. And I think that was in 2015 at the iZone, where you were demonstrating a prototype of the Iris Tech technology. And you know, maybe we should start there. When people think about displays, they often think in terms of the hardware. But there's other technologies that bring out the best display performance at a system level. So please tell us about Iris Tech, its key technologies, and how Iris Tech makes displays, especially automotive displays, better. For sure. That's right. Very good memory. 2015 uh, at iZone. That's when we met. That's when I attended SID for the first time. And uh, of course, at that time, we were just, uh, as you mentioned, incubated within Tandem Launch. So uh, Helge was the treasurer of SID at that time. And uh, he brought me and my co-founder, Afsun Sudi, uh, for the first time to, to SID and introduced us to the society, including yourself and a lot of um, the good friends that we work with today in display industry. I, I met them first at, uh, at SID 2015. Uh, the demo we had was a very, um, later I realized it was not fitting the, the society of uh, information for display at that time because it was so much on the application side of the display. And we, we came a long way since then uh, to look about, look into everything else uh, that makes the display perform better. Um, and Iris Tech is, is one of those. So we started Iris Tech with the notion of improving, measuring and improving the perceived quality of the display. 
how do we define the perceived quality, how do we use methods and algorithms to improve it, and then how do we uh, compare and evaluate these, these uh, solutions. Uh, of course, software solutions is what um, our startup started with, with, with the focus on software, um, a bit of AI, um, which nowadays, of course, it's more and more advanced. We're gonna talk about software and hardware a bit later in our uh, discussion maybe, but um, that was the goal. The goal was to try to improve, of course, high dynamic range is one of the uh, ways that you can um, put the uh, point of measurement into the audience and the viewer rather than on the display. Uh, I remember um, very early on in, uh, in SID, I was learning that um, what matters is not what we measure, but what we see. And uh, I didn't know it's, it's going to be that difficult, so I'm now gray here to hear, um, to, to make it happen. Of course, it was difficult, but I think that the... the um, the industry, the display industry has gone a very, very long way, an impressive way in the last seven, eight years uh, to kind of shift the point of the measurement uh, from the display and uh, the pixels to, the, to what's happening inside uh, our visual system. There is so much to talk about there. There, there is, um, in your opening here, you've covered high dynamic range, human visual system, uh, software and hardware, and uh, I wanna just do something really simple here. Here's a photo uh, of, of you and your partner, uh, uh, co-founder, I guess, uh, from yes. 2015. Uh, and this is actually the same show where we first met. Um, and that was your first demo of, as you said, very basic form technology, but uh, uh, this is going back to, I guess, yeah, 2015. Yes, 2015, and that, that we had a very, um a uh, very, very simplistic uh, kind of uh, blackboard that we would put the tablet in it and we, would, we were trying to show what can be done for, for nighttime vision to improve the perceived quality on a super low and dimmed screen. So when you basically reduce the dynamic range and bit depth to minimum, still you have room for, for improvement using uh, some of the AI and some of the image processing techniques. Um, so that was our first demo, and we were basically asking everybody, including yourself, who are visiting us at iZone, to put your head into that kind of dark room and, and look at the tablet and press this button for to see the before-after uh, and tell us how, kind of how much um, enhanced visibility or better readability you're going to get. Of course, we did a lot of user... Uh, experiments later on uh, on that demo, but that was the first very simplistic demo that we had on on early, early, early stage. Uh, I wouldn't even say the technology of Iris Tech, but just the ideation phase of Iris Tech. Uh, I, I remember that, and uh, I thought it was a cool demo, even if it was early stage. And then something like a year later, here's a shot with uh, both of you and Greg Ward. Um, that and I, I guess he joined your technical advisory board. Is that right? That is correct. That's correct. And that was one of the uh, high points of iOS tech whenever I think about it or when I look back. Uh, the technical advisory board, the friends and the community. It's not a very big community. We, we bump into, into each other pretty often. Uh, and of course, Greg, the father of uh, high dynamic range, uh, he was one of the earliest supporters of us uh, with Rafael Mantiuk, uh, 
who is a professor in Cambridge. Now, I don't have a picture of him, I guess. I have a lot of pictures of him, so it's, it's going to come later, but not in this particular picture. Uh, and yes, so one late year later, what happened is 2015, we were in ideation phase. By 2016, um, we did kind of clear up the idea of what we want to do and the scope of it a bit more. We advanced on the demos. We advanced on the patenting um, uh, building a team, securing the, the first findings, uh, making sure that uh, we have the business traction and business feedback and market feedback. So all the things that you need to check mark as, a, as an early stage startup. Uh, and one of the important ones for me was that I inherited and learned uh, this one from Helge was to build a technical advisory board. Uh, Greg was probably the first technical advisors, advisor we had um, on board. And I'm very happy and proud that all of them are still with us post-acquisition, with some additions post-acquisition uh, of Iris Tech. Um, and we just ran our uh, 2022 in-person technical advisory board annual meeting um, a month ago in, uh, in Montreal. So yes, it's, uh, it's one of the pleasures of the work and things that I enjoyed the most, working with Greg's of the world. Well, there's, there's two photos to look at then. Here, here is a shot and we can see uh, Helga is in the middle. Um, so yes. was, was he the one who yeah. told you about these check check boxes? And yes, he was my investor and technical advisor and mentor. So it was a lot of uh, a lot of hats that he was wearing at that time. Uh, I think that that picture is from 2016, uh, and that's when we incorporated uh, Iris Tech. So we we graduated from uh, from Helga's Tandem Launch Incubator, uh, and we became an independent company at that time. And we had our first technical advisory board meeting uh, in person in Irish Tech offices at that time. That's, a, that's an office in WeWork where we were staying. Uh, I think in that picture, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, you also have Alan Chalmers um, from Warwick University still working with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to have been working with him for a while. I think you have Jonas Unger there. Uh, we probably have Rafal, I think we have Michael, Mike Miller. Uh, so there, there's some of our technical advisory uh, board members uh, and Helge in the center. I think Helge is the one which is talking uh, in that yes. picture. Yes. It, it's always wise to listen when he's talking. Uh, he has, yes, he has everybody's listening in that picture. Um, and then I've got this other shot here that, it, that we'll just now put up, uh, which is you had talked about this, the post-COVID meeting that was held this year. Yes, this is, uh, I think, a month ago uh, that we managed, at least with, uh, well, now we have 10 um, mostly professors that are our technical advisory board members. Uh, and this shot is uh, when we managed to get together after almost uh, three years. So the last tab meeting in person was September 2019, 2020, 2021. We had it, uh, of course, virtually, which was not at all the same. And uh, 2022, that, that shot is uh, us all excited. And part of the excitement, of course, is the tab and the discussions. But a big part of it is the fact that we could all meet together and uh, brainstorm uh, in person, which uh, adds, of course, so much more value than, uh, than being limited to the screen. Oh, I'm happy we're getting together uh, again, because just in terms of collaboration, being able to read the nonverbal cues. You can tell when somebody's thinking. Uh, you miss a lot of that when you're over Zoom or whatever virtual tool you're using. 
Um, is this picture taken in Montreal? I, I know it's kind of a Ferris yes, wheel. Yes, that's our office. Uh, so that's our rooftop office with the uh, with the Montreal wheel in the background. Oh, okay. Uh, you should visit us, Brian. I, I'd love to. Maybe not in winter, but uh... <laughs> no, don't want to come in the winter. The the window is short. It's only four months that you want to come visit. But it's it's uh, a beautiful city from everything that I understand uh, and. Um, People I know who, who've gone there and lived there uh, are very bullish on it, not just because of all the things to do, but also the business climate is quite positive. Um, of course, of course. I think Helge mentioned uh, a bit, he touched on the AI ecosystem, of course. Uh, he mentioned on the tax uh, refund and the government research subsidiaries, which are significant uh, in Quebec particularly. So all of that makes it very uh, very interesting in terms of um, building a startup in, in Montreal. Yes. Um, so let's talk about displays in automotive applications. Uh, this is an area that is exploding. And I noticed that for your company, still small but, but successful, uh, this is an area that you've chosen as a focus area. And I'll say that the latest cars don't look anything like the cars of even five years ago. And displays are driving a big part of that change. So uh, please give your viewers your thoughts on the outlook for automotive display applications and the growth prospects for this industry. For sure. Well, you're right. Displays don't look anything similar to what they were, or displays in the cars don't look uh, anything similar to what they were a few years ago and probably nothing similar to what they're going to look like in five years from now. Um, and uh, it's very interesting because originally my startup was not um, focused on automotive industry to start with. We started with consumer and we pivoted after around 18 months. Um, and uh, automotive display market is the fastest growing display market. Uh, of course, consumer market is bigger, but it's uh, kind of plateaued in terms of the numbers, and automotive is the one which is uh, booming right now uh, in terms of display market for, for two main reasons. One is the size. The size of the displays are becoming bigger, bigger and bigger, so they introduce new types of interactions, user experience needed, new, um, new concepts within the cockpit, that's one uh, main reason and driver. And the second one is the number. The number of displays per car is growing massively and exponentially. Uh, right now, on average, we are at 2.5 displays per car, and we are going to be soon at 7 per car. 7 per car. Yes. So it's, a, again, of course, projections. We always have a lower-end cars and then higher-end cars, but on average, uh, we are going to have more and more. Uh, and more different types, right? Right now you can see that um, there was always a question of OLED being adapted in the automotive industry or not. What will happen with micro-LED uh, coming into play? Uh, what can we do with transparent displays in terms of automotive uh, and uh, driving? What happens with all the functional safety and all the requirements that automotive has um, that you need to still uh, make sure that you're compliant with? So it's a lot of well-known. It's a massively fast-developing uh, industry within automotive for displays, I guess. Uh, of course, head-up displays are there, but uh, the, there's so many limitations with them. 
and all of those limitations that we, we face currently in terms of visibility of the head-up display, how much you can control, um, the, uh, the attention of the driver to what is needed and required in particular time when they're driving, distraction is a challenge, uh, power is a huge challenge right now, and displays are one of the main uh, driving points after the engine when it comes to interiors, one of the main uh, power-hungry parts of the interior in the cockpit. So all of that means there is a lot of room for, for innovation, for improvement and, and disruption. So I think there will be user-centric uh, use cases defined that will change the way that we integrate and use displays in the car in the, in the near future. You know, at uh, Display Week this year, uh, at the exhibition, there was actually a new Mercedes, Mercedes Benz, yeah. a new Mercedes Benz on the show floor, uh, yes. and, and you know everybody could get into this car and look at it. And, and I've got a photo of it up here. It's uh, so modern and, and stunning, and completely resets uh, driver expectations and owner expectations about what a car should look like. And um, so this thing that I'm showing here is. Uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz Hyperscreen, uh, I think it's sometimes called MBUX, maybe that's Mercedes-Benz user experience is a guess. Uh, and um, I understand that your company's product is in this car, so. That is true. Yeah, yeah tell us about that. For sure. Uh, happy to. So uh, yes, Mercedes-Benz is our um, first customer in production uh, with, with our first product. Um, and that particular hyperscreen that you're talking about um, on particular classes of, of Mercedes-Benz, I think that demo was uh, probably a, a S-class, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in the middle screen, which is the uh, OLED screen for infotainment, our technology was adopted in 2021. We first got adopted um, in, uh, in Mercedes-Benz back in 2020. Um, it's a lot of things that happen with the timeline. So we got acquired in April 2020. Um, we started working with Benz around 2017. And our product was on the street with Benz uh, by August 2020 in E-Class convertible. And then 2021 is when the hyperscreen came out um, uh, with S-Class. And, and yes, we were our software is integrated in that as well uh, for sunlight visibility purposes. So what we do is we make sure that um, we maintain the perceived quality of the display uh, when there is harsh lighting conditions such as sunlight or uh, nighttime driving. And these are super challenging conditions because it's not just like the difference between day and night, but somebody can be in a bright ambient, drive into a tunnel, uh, and suddenly it's dark, uh, and um, you have the human... Uh, visual system, adaptation time, but you also have the, uh, the instant, life. yes, every, everything changing quickly. Uh, so it's not a simple problem at all to figure out how yeah. to make the display look its best and not be a distraction, not be overly bright, but also be properly visible and make it seamless because the driver shouldn't have to know any of this is going on. They should just, oh, there's my display and it looks right kind of experience, right? Very on point as usual. and. Uh... That's why we were lucky to partner um, with Benz as our first and lead customer. 
uh, all of those tricky situation test cases that you mentioned. Uh, keep in mind, this is not a high dynamic range display, right? So you don't have a huge range. It's a normal display that you need to still make sure is readable to pass all the functional safety requirements, the readability of the text, the map, etc. So there are so many various um, uh, corner cases and scenarios, such as the tunnel scenario that you mentioned, um, that you would have to make sure it's not just a, the our software processing the pixel. It's how it works with how the backlight changes, how the sensor reading of the information is happening, and making sure all of this is, is in sync, as you said, that the user feels like, I had a display before I entered the tunnel, which was readable, now I entered the tunnel and it still looks readable, and I don't feel any flicker or anything that puts me off of something happened here that I need to be worried about. Um, so that's the part that um, makes it interesting, but also challenging. All the user experience part, the parts that uh, we have less control over. Um, but um, if we figure them out, then we're going to be so happy to celebrate it. So a lot of our patents portfolios that we built, a lot of our uh, test cases and uh, scenarios that we worked on with Benz were, were really to, to catch those corner cases and uh, make sure that the product works so that the user can continue um, driving safely. So there's such a hard problem to solve here. This is such a challenge. Um, and I think in terms of not just uh, making the display look good, but all the regulatory environment. For instance, in the US, we actually have two agencies, NHTSA, which is National Highway Transportation Safety Administration or something like that. And then there's the Department of Transportation. I think in Canada, you have something called Transport Canada. Is that right? Yes, um, and, and, and every country has its own regulatory body. Uh, so it's not easy uh, to get approval uh, through all these regulatory bodies, and yet, um, we were talking off camera uh, a few days ago, and you know that the typical consumer electronics developer and manufacturer thinks in terms of how fast their industry has to move, and their point of view in the automotive industry is that it's kind of slow moving. It takes a lot longer to get things done. But uh, you changed my thinking on this because what you were explaining is like, no, Brian, actually, uh, they have to move very quickly and. Uh, it's competitive and, and now the time from ideation to product delivery is much shorter in automotive. Is that right? Exactly. At least that's the part of the automotive market that I am, I am very passionate about. Of course, there is always kind of the lower end section for displays in automotive market that there are some cars that they will not have displays or they will even ask, um, there was a terminology I recently heard, bring your own display. So um, bring your own tablet, plug it in, and, and use it in the car if you want. Uh, so of course, we're not talking about that sector, but the, the kind of um, more advanced part of the automotive industry, the, the brands that we know, mid and high-end cars, um, for sure had to. I think this was a challenge maybe five years ago, six years ago, that they were slow. But uh, today, you can say that a lot of improvement has been done, so they know that um, especially when it comes to adapting software, software as a service, software as a product. Um, they need to be so much faster. The cycles cannot be the usual seven-year cycles because the technology is, 
it's going to be completely outdated by the time that the car is going to be on the street. Um, in our case, it was three years from, from really collaboration with Daimler to have the software in the car in production. And of course, Mercedes-Benz is, is one of the fastest and, and more innovative pioneers uh, in, the, in the industry. Uh, but you're completely right. And I, I agree with you that um, not necessarily today you can say that um, automotive follows consumer. So sometimes it can happen that automotive goes to production faster with a feature and consumer follows if they see that's working and that's the need of the end user. So you can, of course, it's still majority of the of the um, cases that you feel something in in your consumer device and then you start demanding it as an, as an end user in the car. Uh, but our product was one of the examples of um, leveraging image uh, processing um, to solve sunlight visibility in the car first and then followed by um, by consumer devices, mobile devices, and, and laptops in the market. Um, so I think it's becoming more and more fluid. So you cannot have that kind of rule of automotive is going to take seven years and consumer is going to be always within one year or 18 months. Uh, definitely there is competition. Definitely there is overlap of suppliers. Uh, definitely there is an ecosystem that um, is working together. So there, there, today you can see that Netflix is working with Tesla, for example, or Hulu is working with Tesla, I guess. So there is, even on the content side, um, these walls are broken. And this is, this is the fun part because you can have the A to Z of the content creators to the display guys, the real estate, wherever that real estate is, whether it's on my, in my car or on my watch, to kind of work all together to bring the best uh, and most realistic a perceived quality to the to the viewer and uh yeah i i think this is an interesting era that we are living I, i'm excited by the fact that all of this is becoming more collaborative than ever well and it's certainly true that whichever one comes first the technologies developed in one can be applied in another area so for example the idea of what the automotive display is doing somebody takes their iphone or their tablet outside uh, and suddenly it's in sunlight, but part of it's in the shade, uh, and you have to try to make that image look as good as possible. Uh, a lot of the same technologies or ID, uh, ideas could be carried over, uh, and that's exciting. I, I have to ask you, where did the idea for the Mercedes hyperscreen come about? Uh, that's a good idea. Good question. I am not sure if I can really... Uh answer the full question because the, I know the hardware part of it um, was years of research and discussion within um, within Daimler back then, Mercedes-Benz today. Um, and there were generations of uh, tests that they were doing uh, to define what will be their uh, next big thing for, for their new car. Um, we were part of that journey with them on the software side on in terms of how they advance the software and the content and the HMI side to match this, this massive, beautiful uh, hardware piece. Uh, so we witnessed part of the journey, but how it really came about, uh, uh, there is a lot of collaborations they have with, uh, with uh, great suppliers, I think, on every part of it. And I know that uh, Benz now um, started back in 2016 and now probably is is very solidly having their own software team as well. Um, a company called Ambition, who is uh, taking care of their software and HMI 
um, in Berlin. So this is, to, to the extent of my knowledge, all of this within the last maybe decade was a priority for them to, um, to work on the A to Z, as we discussed before, to, to make sure they bring in the software part and, of course, work with the uh, best in the industry for the, for the hardware part to, to make this uh, very interesting, uh, unique experience that you, you feel from the dealing with the display. They certainly thought about it in terms of a, a system solution, uh, and, and uh, that's becoming more and more important. Uh, it's not just about a piece of hardware, uh, but it's about the hardware, firmware, the software, the integration into a system, uh, user experience, many considerations. Um, and uh, I think that's going to become more and more important to people who have even, if their mindset is siloed into, you know, I make the glass, uh, they're going to have to be thinking uh, more broadly uh, to design the right kinds of displays. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. It, it's really challenging to start a new company, and, and especially in the display field. And many startups don't succeed. So I want to congratulate you on your success. Uh, we had talked a little bit about check boxes, but what do you think were some of the key factors that led to Iris Tech's success? Uh, key factors. Um, first, congratulations. The thank you for the congratulations and kind words. Uh, it was hard. I'm not going to lie to you. But the key ones, it's very hard because it's hard to answer this question. It's a, a long list of everything that you need to get right. Even if you get them right, still the odds are against you. Um, I don't think uh, there is really a magic pill or a shortcut, but I can tell you maybe my experience on what worked for me and, and our setup at that time when we started the company. Um, for sure, resiliency and grit. I think that's uh, number one for me. Um, in terms of maybe generally success, but uh, in startups, there are so many more no's you're going to ever hear and so many more uh, comments that are not going to be motivating you rather than the opposite. So on a daily basis, there are going to be 10 investors who tell you no until you find one that will tell you yes. And there are going to be 10 potential business partners that will tell you, no, this will never work until you find that one. So this, um, maybe it's more of a character of building yourself in a way that you, you develop a thick skin and you don't uh, mind hearing the no's. And, and after that, uh, in ideal case, at some point, hopefully, uh, we learn how to leverage those no's and understand better what is not working uh, for us in that scenario. So for me, the first one is really resiliency and grit um, for any type of success, but particularly in startups, uh, because the environment is, is uh, more unknown and less planable at the beginning. Second one um, is people. It's always people. Uh, right partners, right customers, right investors, right co-founders, um, team, everybody. And because the, the whole project is already very hard, it's always good to have the right people to go to war with. So that's uh, probably the second uh, item I would mention. And then of course comes to all the technical side, the technical risks, assessing the technical risks of the startup, uh, how to assess it constantly and in an iterative mode, um, knowing where the 
where the market is going, the trends, uh, futuristic trends, and things like that. But those to me are are less important compared to grit and uh, and the people that you work with. Resilience, people, and technical assessment, um, all important. Um, I wonder in what ways is your parent company, Farisha, making uh, or helping at least to make Iris Tech better? Uh, in a lot of ways. So maybe a little bit a brief on, on Foresia because uh, since we joined Foresia also a lot has happened. Uh, last February, they're called Forvia now. So if you want to really be accurate, it's Forvia Foresia. Um, so Forvia um, is now emerged uh, after um, acquisition of Hella by Foresia. So it's a new name since uh, February this year. Uh, and they are the seventh largest uh, automotive uh, tier one company globally with uh, 150,000 uh, employees in 40 different countries. Um, so it has, it was, Foresia was already a very um, big company when it got acquired, but of course, after merging with Hella, they've become uh, even more um, broader and, and uh, bigger in terms of footstep, but also the diversity of the products that they're gonna um, provide to the automotive industry. Um, so being part of such a big company from a team of uh, 15 engineers, uh, it's, it's a big shift. Um, and one of the goals that we had uh, when we were discussing the potential acquisition right before COVID, uh, this is a funny story. I open parentheses here. Um, the executive team from uh, Foresia came to visit us on March 10th of 2020. And the next team, so this was with their EVP at that time and their CTO. Wait, wait, this is at the beginning of the pandemic, really? Right at the pandemic. And of course, we didn't know it's going to be a global shutdown within four days from there. So they flew back and the next team was supposed to meet us the week after. So I think on a Thursday, we said goodbye. And on the next Tuesday or so, the next team from Foresia is supposed to come here to discuss roadmap and details. And then we had the whole pandemic. Uh, happening, I think, on March 13th in Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. So we, we shut down and we had to, both sides, we had to figure out what are we doing now with this, right? Um, and it's it shows their agility. Of course, on their side, we were small. We are used to unknown parameters dropping on our head all the time and dealing with it. But uh, for me, it was very interesting that they, they managed to move forward with the same timeline, with same plan and everything, and switching immediately to uh, to remote mode to continue the, the discussions. Um, sorry, I'm just going to close the parenthesis. It's just uh, reminded me of the pandemic uh, uh, time. Um, so since we got acquired and as part of our discussions um, during the acquisition period, um, we had few um, very important key topics that uh, would very clearly specify what would be uh, the win-win situation on both sides. Of course, we had the roadmap and roadmap merging. That's more of a technical side that our roadmap and our products would fit within Foresia's vision and what they have. But uh, when it comes to operations and business side, uh, one of the interesting things was um, that they immediately had the idea of building the hardware version of our, our technology or IP. 
Uh, we were only software only product at that time. Uh, software only is cool, but it might be at that time for sure a bit early for automotive. So one of the things that Forestia enabled us to do as Iris Tech was to make sure whatever we are developing is also going to be available in a hardware format, which will be so much more easier to specify and use in, in automotive industry uh, to control everything on a display side rather than have dependency on a GPU or CPU. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was their massive global footprint uh, that, of course, helps any startup and, and uh, us as well to get access to customers so much more easier. Rather than being a small entity in uh, Montreal trying to go and meet and deal with, evangelize and deal with, with all the big car makers, Forestia has already established relationship with all these car makers and has big presence in, in Japan, in China, in um, US, in Europe uh, to, to help us get very much easier uh, to the customer's doors. So these are, I would say, the two main uh, parts that uh, Forestia really helped and kind of restructured the way we were working. I'm, I'm sure that there were challenges, so um, was it hard going through the assimilation process? Were there big culture changes that, that came uh, with the acquisition of your company? Um, yes and no. So the, the no part of it is that, um, again, as part of the pre-acquisition discussion, uh, the, the EVP who, who were discussing with us at that time was uh, one of the smartest um, businessman I've, I've met and worked with. So, um, and I had the pleasure of working with him for, for a short period. Um, but he, um, he clearly wanted to make sure that, uh, and I think Foresia's general, um, uh, higher management had this, um, clear, um, understanding and idea of keeping Iris Tech, um, as a sec separate entity in Canada. So we didn't really merge uh, the company so that we can still keep some of the uh, benefits of being in Quebec, uh, as well as keeping the startup mode and spirit, as they call it. Um, so a lot of our colleagues and team members, if you ask them, probably they haven't been even affected by the acquisition, which I think is unique. It's very smart of Forasia and it was new. I've heard a lot of horror stories uh, about post-acquisition before that uh, we were a little bit worried on what's going to happen. Two and a half years later, uh, we have still majority of our team there. We have expanded the team here in Montreal. So I think that was a very uh, right decision to keep the startup spirit. Uh, but of course, then there are other parts uh, or which we try to limit it to some of our people within the company uh, when it comes to finance, when it comes to legal, uh, when it comes to the supporting roles, HR, that um, you will be affected, of course, when you merge into any company, yet alone a startup into a big corporation, um, that we will have to deal with it, right? So it's, it's still a learning curve for me. So I'm still learning uh, big company terminology. I'm still learning big company dynamics. Um, but I'm happy that we have both sides, right? If it was each time side extreme, it would have been a little bit um, not ideal. If we were still the startup, everything we want to do ourselves, then it would be not really merged into the big company. You couldn't 
claim you're part of the big company. Uh, you couldn't be sure you're benefiting or they are benefiting both ways. And if we were completely merged, I think we would have then lost uh, a lot of our momentum and, and dynamics of the, of the team. So the fact that we managed to kind of pick and choose the areas that we are going to really do an integration versus areas that we are going to let it more um, running on its own, that probably uh, gave us the flexibility and, uh, and uh, ongoing momentum. That's awesome. It sounds like you've really been able to combine the best of both worlds. You, you have the stability and the funding and the customer connections uh, of the large corporation, but you've maintained the startup hustle and um, connectedness and uh, uh, energy of, of the small company that you wore. Uh, so that's like an ideal outcome. At least that was the plan. So we, we will have to evaluate where, where we are with that, but uh, definitely. Right. Well, the, the story is still being written, right? So That is true. That's true. I, I found a video on you. It is called uh, Tara Akavan, A Perception Story. It's an interesting video, and we're going to post the link to that here for our viewers to watch. Um, I will mention that you're not only a, an entrepreneur, but you are a successful uh, young female entrepreneur in a male-dominated field. So I'd like to ask, what advice can you offer uh, to others who are young, female, or possibly both, who might have a good idea and they want to take a shot uh, to try to start their own enterprise? I, I keep learning still every day, and this, it's not that I've solved it. Just because we managed to sell the company and then get integrated within a big corporation doesn't mean I've, I've solved the, the big question of how to deal with uh, being more or less all the time minority in the room, one way or the other, whether it's the age or the gender or, uh, or the background. Uh, I, I have been probably uh, times that I've been the only immigrant, only women, and the youngest around the table. And you're also the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, most of the times, no, in some of the dynamics. But the best advice I can give is uh, just don't care about it. You cannot change everybody's view on not seeing you as a minority. But the moment you accept that you are the minority, that's when everything falls apart. At least be the one person in a room that believes none of this matters and then, then act on it, right? So probably that's the best advice I can give. It doesn't mean I can always act on it. It's very difficult. It's easier say than done. Um, but, um, but it shouldn't really matter. Uh, and you know, the more we advance, the more we, we have diverse environments. Of course, it's so much more diverse now than ever. When I first met you at SID, probably you remember me because I was the only woman exhibiting in, on the whole show floor. But last this past year SID, there were so many women and so many young students and generation that you could see uh, are participating on the, on the exhibition floor, uh, iZone as well, which, um, which is great. So it's, it's becoming better, right? But you cannot control the timing as someone who lives it, and you cannot control how many supporters you're going to have in a room. So the best thing you can do is do your thing, be confident about your thing, have the perseverance, grit, 
and be prepared to, to defend. So be comfortable um, with the assumptions that are going to be made and then build it up. So if you really know your thing, it doesn't matter if you get questions five more times. Then you just explain it for, for five more times and you try to build the, the, the trust. So that's the best I think we can do. And of course, with, with time, uh, I'm hoping that things are going to change uh, towards the better, better situation in terms of every accepting every type of minority more and more in work environments, in startup communities, investment communi communities, uh, automotive industry, display industry, all of that. Well, some of the themes that you're touching on here go back to resilience uh, as, as an entrepreneur. Um, and there's another video uh, that we're gonna post right here uh, that features you and talks, you're, you're talking about that in this. Uh, so I think that'll be interesting for our, our viewers as well. I actually remember your demo, by the way, because I thought uh, it was a really cool uh, concept. I don't wanna say product, because it wasn't at that point, but it was a, it was a cool concept. Uh, not to mention the fact that Helga, who's somebody who I trust a lot and worked with closely, uh, on the SID executive board, he was very excited about it. And he said, oh, Brian, you got to come and see this. And, and uh, so uh, that was another anchor point as, as well. Of course, of course. So that's it. If you have a cool demo, if you, if you do the, the thing you're doing right, then it really shouldn't matter. Uh, but um, now that you're talking about minority and you, you kindly mentioned this, um, it has also worked in, our, in my benefit at least. You know, I've been... I have examples of meetings that I've, I've been to and there has been 50 startups pitching and um, they remember that, that one, you know, that, that young girl, which one was that startup? And the investor was later looking for me. So it, it sometimes works for you if you're the minority, it's easier to find you. Um, or someone in Daimler in the management team was once trying to remember that, that demo that I saw and I couldn't really explain it. And they're like, that one, you know, the one that we saw at CES with the, with the young team. Um, and it, it can work in your benefit too, being sometime on the minority side. Uh, you're easier to locate and, and search for, um, more memorable sometimes. So um, yeah, it brings me back to the point that do your thing and don't, don't spend a lot of energy and time on figuring out how to solve uh, the problem of being a minority in an environment. Okay, that's really a great perspective, uh, being different as a benefit as opposed to something yes. that holds you back. Tara, looking back on your career uh, so far, is there anything that you'd do differently? I would stress less. I would worry less, I think. Uh, especially as a first-time entrepreneur, as a as an immigrant, everything is new. I was newly vet at that time. Uh, so within a few months, my whole life was changing in every aspect of it. Um, and I love change, but uh, I think stressing and worrying too much and trying to plan every piece, it doesn't really work. So I've learned uh, what I would do differently and I'm trying to do now differently is that I would still plan but I would feel so much more comfortable with the plan not happening at all. And, and then tuning and iterating on the planning. Um, I think I would worry less. I would really spend most of my energy. And it, was, it goes back to what I said about being minority. Uh, 
I spend a lot of my energy trying to hack why the system is like that. And of course, I'm still active and I am I, I run Women in Tech and I try to help any type of minority and, and share my lessons learned. But at the same time, um, we cannot fix everything in our timeline. So sometimes what works is to worry less and just continue pushing through. Uh, so probably I would do that. I would stress less and worry less if I go back in time. Um, hey, you mentioned uh, women in tech. So I, I should uh, expand on that. This year at SID's Display Week, uh, as in past years, you hosted a panel on women in technology. And, and you know, by the way, thank you very much for hosting that event. Um, there's a, a recent article uh, on this topic in SID's Information Display Magazine. Um, I think it's the most recent or maybe almost the most recent uh, issue. And we're gonna post that article here uh, for everybody to get so they can read it. And uh, actually you're the first female guest of the display show and, and it's about time. Um, thinking back on the SID panel discussion, can you uh, tell us some of the key takeaways from that? For sure. Thank you for bringing it up. And yes, for sure, we are um, at SID. Very proudly, I'm working with a, with a very, very good team uh, of people that I enjoy uh, working with, uh, volunteer basis. Um, for the last seven years, I think we've done seven as a women in tech uh, so far at SID and in 2023, we are going to do the eighth one. Um, if they don't fire me in between now and then. Uh, if they fire me, just cut this part out. Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't see that happening at I'm all. volunteering. Come on, you cannot fire me, SID. But um, uh, joking aside, um, it has been one of the highlights of SID for me every year um, that you meet um, smart people in general and, and of course, smart women. Uh, this year, we specifically, last year, well, 2022, we focused on um, uh, moving forward after setbacks. So the discussion was um, towards what do you do as a woman or men um, if there are setbacks and maybe it happens more, maybe there are some setbacks which are specific to women, um, but we were speaking about it in general terms. Um, we had amazing guests. I encourage uh, everybody to, to check it out if this is a topic they're interested in. Um, and the highlights are no matter where we come from, no matter if you're from a startup or from Dell or from uh, chip companies, you have the same challenges. And it's interesting how every year I try to put together a very diverse panel. So this past year I had, um, I had Professor versus uh, versus uh, someone from chip industry and someone from display industry, and I'm trying to find different answers to the question that I ask. But every year I fail in getting different answers because when we ask about challenges and how you overcome them, the answers are very very similar. So that's the part we love, um, and. Um, I think that's one of the main key highlights for me that um, it goes back to resiliency, to greet, to success doesn't have a magic kind of equation or formula, but uh, people who get successful in very different industries, different businesses with different backgrounds still follow uh, at least uh, a guideline of not giving off, pushing through, not getting disappointed. 
uh, too early. So that was one of the key highlights for me this year as well. Well, we're showing a photo here, and I believe it shows, uh, looks like you snapped a, a selfie. Uh, that is true. Should be with Mary Loomis, uh, Allison, um, and Nirui is her family name. Is the is her family name is Nirui, but I think her name was Farnas Nirui, if I'm not mistaken. But the three uh, speakers on my panel, yes, that should be a photo we took together. Well, I hope you'll do it again next year, and I hope that uh, viewers will consider attending that. Um, and uh, I, I know that I will. Thank you. But most of our viewers are quite interested in uh, the society, uh, and you're serving as a vice chair of marketing for SID. What does that job entail? I really, really wish I knew. Um, <laughs> maybe Richard, the moment you have to, it, it touches everything, and then I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting path that I took with SID, and I am mostly enjoying uh, the, the collaborations. Uh, what it really means, I think, is to be part of the team who works for planning of the Display Week. So that's where the marketing part of it comes from because um, traditionally, I think, they only had marketing planning for Display Week as the, as the main theme. Uh, of course, they try to now put like a little bit of a business forum or CEO forum, a bit of women in tech touch in there, but it's still under the umbrella of marketing planning. So that's why it says marketing, not that I have any talent or background in marketing. Um, so I think that's why it's there because it works with the marketing team. Um, and my main responsibility really is the events. So starting this year, I'm gonna take a, on a little bit more. So I've done women in tech. Mostly, um, and for 2023, I'm going to do CEO and uh, YES also. So there's three main events that we are going to plan with, uh, with the help of colleagues, of course. I have to share something with you. I, you didn't see it because he's off camera, but when I asked um, what the job entails, the, the vice chair of marketing entails, uh, another one of your vice chairs is, is Jeff Urich, <laughs> our producer, and, and off camera, he was... He was Love laughing it. when I asked because he said, I don't really know. <laughs> and he was just I don't know either. You know, this is all Shree's fault. I think we need to go hunt down Shree uh, to ask her, what is the job description? Everybody is asking for it. But uh, th this is the... Uh, yeah, you're, you're talking about Sri Piravembo. Yes, of course. Previous, yeah. the chair of marketing, right? Yes, the, the ex-chair of marketing, I think. So I... Um, I love having these mentors, these friends, these colleagues from SID. SID, for me, over the past years, has become uh, like a friends gathering. I look forward to it, not just because I go and attend the technical sessions we present, we exhibit, but it's a reunion with a lot of known uh, faces, a lot of partners in crimes, uh, that, including Sri, that got us all into this without giving us a job description. Um, but yeah, that's the fun part of it. And I, I really believe uh, it's, a, uh, it's a solid um, society by foundation, thanks to you and, and all the ex-presidents and current president. But um, it's still not as well known as it should be in the, uh, in the society. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can all uh, contribute and do our part in uh, giving back what we all got from, from SID by, by making it a little bit broader, a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit more well-known uh, to, to, 
get to the levels of SIGGRAPHs and CVPRs of the, of the world. Do you have any advice for viewers who are interested in becoming more active with SID? For sure. It's, uh, it's everything in one week. And I've attended most of the display week to me, at least. So the, the main reason I became uh, active in SID was that I attended display week. And I realized that you need to prepare to attend for display week. Display week is not just a conference you go to. It's, it's N in one. So it's one event with so many different things you can get away from. Get, get from, sorry. Uh, recently, if you're interested in startups, you can go to iZone. You can talk to investors. There is an investor uh, forum. There is uh, business uh, discussions and business meetings. So there's so many different aspects of SID that, um, to me, makes it um, a very worth investment to attend Display Week. And then from there, you can find your niche uh, or or a few different niches if you want to continue being active in SID. But to me, it's a, it's a very solid um, foundation of multidisciplinary um, event to attend. So Display Week is, uh, is, a, is very taken very, very importantly in our, in our company. Um, that's, I think everything you said is so true. And uh, of course, I've been active in, in SID for a long time, uh, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity, uh, not just for learning uh, and participation, but also for volunteering, which helps to build networks uh, and is rewarding in many other ways. Um, I suppose finally we, we should talk about standardization activities. Uh, you're probably aware that even at my age, uh, I remain active with SID's uh, International Committee for Display Metrology, as well as the IEC, or International Electrotechnical Commission. And I note that you're active with the CIE, which uh, is another important group for our industry. Can you help everyone understand why that's important for your company and what the benefits are of working on standards? Uh, very good question. Um, and of course, we are we're just learning uh, from you. So. Literally, that's one of the good things that can get from SID. You can find mentors uh, also. If people ask me, where do you find mentors? How do you ask them to be your mentor? And SID is one of those places that you can see a lot of people, experts in the field, um, who are very modest and very kind to, to guide you through every step uh, of your career. Um, standardization is one of those for me. So I started um, getting to know different standardization uh, parties and um, in our field, particularly perceptual uh, display processing, uh, which is my domain, it's very important to be able to have a unified unified way of measurement and agreeing. Let's let's look. Uh, let's assume uh, one of the car makers wants to use a technology that is helping with sunlight visibility. They want to write it down in their RFQ and send it out to all the suppliers. Uh, what should be the threshold or the metric they use for perceptual quality and readability in sunlight environment? So it's a long, long way for us, I think, to go. There is a, that's why I'm interested to be part of the standardization, uh, part, kind of a standardization network because uh, we have nothing today that can help us uh, measure the perceived quality 
of the display, or we have a little, I shouldn't say nothing. We have a little bit of starting points, but it's far from uh, what can be specified um, for car, make, car makers or OEMs to be able to use it uh, across the board. So that's my main motivation. Uh, it's, it's equally important for the company because we are working in this area uh, and we're help, hoping that we sell more and more products uh, to help with perceptual quality of the displays. And at the same time, we need to make sure that we build a framework to measure uh, and evaluate and specify uh, the quality. So that to me is, is definitely key. It's probably as important as building the products in this field. I see so much of that also. Uh, uh, getting alignment across the industry on uh, evaluation of displays, and you're touching on a really important uh, area, which is the human perception uh, and, and how to do visual assessment uh, and actually have it be repeatable um, across a wide population of people. That's, that's a really hard problem to solve. Uh, and I'm glad that there are smart people like yourself who are, who are working on exactly that. Um, hey, Tara, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. And I want to thank you for being our guest. And we wish you all the best as you continue to drive innovation in our industry. Likewise. Thank you, Brian. It was great talking to you, as usual. And looking forward to see you next time, maybe at Display Week. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.